Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions. An accidental company. Hey everyone and welcome to the At TSN Hockey Bobcast, Season 2, Episode 5. This one for Friday, November 17th, 2017. This would also be the I'm a Grandpa edition of the Bobcast, which is very cool. Uh, yes, a week ago yesterday, that would be Thursday, November 9th. My son Mike and his lovely wife Andy had a beautiful baby girl. So welcome to the world, Blake Bella McKenzie. Uh, she came a few weeks earlier than anticipated, but uh, mom and baby are doing great. And it's so very, very exciting for my wife Cindy and myself. Um, I mean, when you have two boys, Mike and Sean, and raise them and go through the trials and tribulations of uh, of two boys, it's especially nice for Cindy, but also myself, um, to uh, get a beautiful baby girl in the form of Blake Bella. So uh, that's awesome. So thanks for all the, the well wishes. Um, I do appreciate that. Uh, it's a game changer for sure. Um, now, as for the Bobcast today, I think we're probably uh, mostly hockey talk, kind of a hardcore uh, hockey edition of the Bobcast. Um, this is also, I guess, the uh, pre-U.S. Thanksgiving edition of the Bobcast. By the time we do another one, U.S. Thanksgiving will be over next weekend. So uh, to all our American listeners, and there are many of them, I'm sure, uh, have a great Thanksgiving when it arrives. Um, and uh, that should be a lot of fun. I, of course, I have tremendous Thanksgiving envy. Everybody knows that. We've talked about that in previous editions of the Bobcast. Um, so, uh, and of course, I, I should just do what Pierre Lebrun does, my colleague at TSN. He thinks he's an American. He thinks because he cheers for the Dallas Cowboys, America's team, that um, he should be able to celebrate Thanksgiving. So he he basically does the whole thing up, football, everybody over for a party at his place on Thursday and uh, and treats the whole weekend like he's uh, an American. So, uh, hey, I guess I should uh, take a page out of that. But anyways, happy Thanksgiving to all of our American listeners. And speaking of American Thanksgiving, that is the mythical date in hockey. Everybody always uses American Thanksgiving as to when it might be acceptable to now fire your coach or when you could be really happy or really unhappy with your team. Um, and obviously, uh, by the time we hit American Thanksgiving, you've got almost two months of the NHL regular season in the books. And so that is a, a, a good measuring stick. And, um, you know, I was doing Edmonton radio this morning, and I mentioned this there. I don't recall a year where there are so many unhappy teams and fan bases as this year coming up a week before American Thanksgiving. I mean, let, let's go through it a little bit here. Um, the truly happy teams and fan bases, who are they? Well, the Tampa Bay Lightning, for sure. My God, are they good. Uh, the St. Louis Blues, better than we thought and very, very good. So hats off to, to Mike Yo for the job he's done there so far. Uh, New Jersey Devils, in spite of uh, losing in the final three seconds of the game to the Toronto Maple Leafs last night, off to a great start. I think Devil fans are are really excited and truly happy with what's happened. And the Vegas Golden Knights um, beat Vancouver last night. They're 11-6-1, and 
far better than anybody thought. They've got to be excited. So there's four teams that I would say are truly happy. Uh, now, mostly happy teams, fan bases. I think Toronto Maple Leaf fans, Winnipeg Jet fans, they're off to a, a real solid start. They're in the upper echelon of the league right now. Although, the reason I, I don't put them in truly happy and only mostly happy is because I think Leaf fans and Jet fans have conditioned themselves to never get too optimistic about how things are going. I think Colorado Avalanche fans with a 9-7-1 record to start are mostly happy. Um, certainly happier than they were a year ago when the team was uh, legendarily and epically bad. Um, that's not to say uh, Colorado was out of the woods by any means, but um, far better start than uh, than a lot of people anticipated for the Avalanche. Are Pittsburgh Penguin fans mostly happy? Kind of. Their schedule's been really tough to start. More road games than home games, a lot of back-to-backs. Um, they got a pretty high bar as back-to-back cup champions. Um, so I wouldn't say that fans are crazy happy in Pittsburgh, but they're, they're mostly on the right side of the ledger, so we'll call them a mostly happy team. Then there's the, uh, we're not sure if we're really happy or not, um, maybe a little wariness to go with some happiness. L.A. Kings got off to a great start. and Everybody's, oh, they lost Jeff Carter and didn't even miss a beat. Well, yeah, now they've lost four games in a row, so there's a little wariness there. Columbus Blue Jackets, um, they've gone 5-4-1 and one in their last 10, but they were really struggling there for a stretch. And uh, th- there's a little wariness in, in Columbus that they're not better than, than, uh, than they have been. Uh, the New York Islanders are 10-6-2. That's a pretty good record. But I think until they get the rink sorted out in Belmont and until they figure out whether John Tavares is there for the long haul, they don't allow themselves to be ridiculously happy. There's a little reservation of, of happiness there. Uh, Nashville's gone 6-3-1 and one in their last 10 to, to kind of even out uh, what was a really tough start for them. Um, but, uh, so they, they may be getting into the more happy category, but maybe not quite there yet. I think Ottawa Senators fans are, they've got all those, uh, overtime and shootout games. They, they seem to steal points in, but they've only got seven regulation or overtime wins, which is amongst the lower end in the league. So even though they're a hard out, uh, the Senators are their fans, I think, uh, feel like uh, a little wariness on their part. Vancouver Canucks, they're a game over 500. Uh, lost to Vegas last night. Um, I'm not sure Vancouver fans have been happy for quite some time, even when they were happy. I'm not sure they were entirely happy, but um, things were a little better than they were expected, but there's still, I think, a fair bit of trepidation in Vancouver. San Jose's gone 7-3-0 and in their last 10, so they're starting to get a little happier there, but you still get the feeling there's some reservations. And the New York Rangers also 7-3-0 and in their last 10 to even out what was a horrendous start. But I think Ranger fans are still wondering long haul, do they have what it takes? Do they need a center? How's that going to work? So those uh, those would be the teams in my mind that uh, not sure whether they're entirely happy, still could go either way. And then there's the not happy at all gang, and, and there's a lot of them. Uh, Washington Capitals, not happy at all. Minnesota Wild, they've played better lately, but still not happy. Calgary, not generally happy with the way things are. Chicago, very average for the Blackhawks. I think there's lots of concern there. Um, the Detroit Red Wings are a game over 500, and that's better than some people thought they would be, 
but that's the problem. I think Detroit Red Wing fans kind of want their team to be really lousy and uh, and not be in the soft middle ground. Uh, Carolina fans are... Uh, They've they've just been okay, and I think people thought they were ready to take a step this year. Uh, Philadelphia, they're three, four, and three in their last ten. I don't think the fans there are very happy. Anaheim and Boston share a, a common malady, and that would be maladies, uh, huge injury problems in both Anaheim and Boston, and they've been kind of average. And maybe average is good enough for. Um, teams that have had as many key injuries as they've had but i also get the feeling that uh, the overall fan base is is not encouraged not happy that could turn around if they get healthy but uh, i don't know uh, as for the really 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 unhappy teams dallas not going well in dallas ken hitchcock can't be happy uh montreal Montreal Canadiens fans are not happy, especially after that loss to Arizona. I don't think Florida Panther fans are overly happy with where they're at. I know Edmonton Oilers fans aren't happy. I did Edmonton radio this morning. They got uh, they got dusted uh, pretty good last night by a good St. Louis team. Uh, there's a severe level of angst in Buffalo that they're not getting better as fast as they thought they would get better. Uh, funny when Mike Babcock was deciding whether to go to Toronto or Buffalo and kind of at first decided Buffalo and then changed his mind and went to Toronto. There were a lot of people at the time that thought those two organizations, Buffalo and Toronto, were kind of even in the, in the rebuild process. And uh, here's Toronto kind of sailing along and Buffalo on a second regime, second head coach um, since that time. Uh, not doing very well. And, and I don't know what to say about Arizona. I know they've played better than their record indicates. But boy, oh boy, they finally got a regulation win against Montreal last night. And uh, they've dug a hole so deep, they just may never be able to uh, to get out of it. So I guess if if there's any good news for all these really unhappy teams, it's that misery does love company. And, um, uh, and I think that, you know, this is a year, and I've said this before, that there's not a lot of really good teams. And there's not a lot of really bad teams. And I think the band in the middle has gotten a lot wider. And therefore, I think being bad and being unhappy is a much more forgiving feeling than in the past. I looked at it. There's 20 teams right now, as of today, with 16 to 22 points. So only six points separating 20 teams in the National Hockey League. And... uh, as I say, if um, if you're in that large band of teams in the soft middle ground that is full of meh, um, that uh, that band is bigger than usual. So uh, if you're an optimist, you've got the ability to rise up out of that uh, that soft middle ground. And if you're a pessimist, uh, you probably think that uh, it's far easier to sink out of that middle ground and uh, right to the bottom. I think I would like to talk a little bit about uh, the best team in the National Hockey League so far. That, of course, would be the Tampa Bay Lightning. And one very specific aspect of the Tampa Bay Lightning, and that is the Russian one. It, it fascinates me, to be honest with you. Um, I love that all-Russian top line for uh, the, the Lightning. Nikita Kucherov, uh, Evgeny Nemesnikov, and Steven Stamkov. Well, you a bad joke i know but steven stamkos of course is not a russian but uh boy oh boy kucherov and the mestikov stamkos it doesn't get any better than that although the blues line of uh 
of uh, Jaden Schwartz, uh, Braden Shen, and Tarasenko has been on fire as well. Back to the Lightning and the Russians. Uh, Andre Vasilevsky has been dominant in net for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Mikhail Sergachev, who's come over from uh, the uh, Montreal Canadiens in that trade for Jonathan Drouin, he's been lights out good. He's five goals, nine points, whatever it is. And um, it, it's interesting to bring up the Russian angle because, you know, the if you look around the National Hockey League, I guess the Washington Capitals would have been sort of the standard bearer of a heavy, heavy Russian influence in the elite positions or the at the high end of their team over the years. Washington, of course, with Alexander Ovechkin, Evgeny Kuznetsov, Dmitry Orlov. Um, but Ovechkin and Kuznetsov very much driving the offensive bus for Washington. And, and their relative lack of success, um, I'm not saying it's because of the, the Russian factor, when we'll talk more about the Russian factor in a, in a moment, but, um, you know, it raises the question amongst many in the National Hockey League, you know, how many is too many Russians? How many is too many key Russians? And uh, so I'm kind of fascinated at, at the, the way the Lightning have gone because it's not just that they've got Nemesnikov and Kucherov and Vasilevsky and Sergachev on their team. It's that they, um, they, they're not shy at all about going to the Russian well when it comes to the draft. And, I mean, you go back to 2011 and they took Nemesnikov in the first round, 27th overall. They took Kucherov in the second round, 58th overall. And uh, they took uh, Nikita Nesterov in the fifth round that year, 148th overall. Of course, Nesterov has since departed, but it's interesting. Three Russians in that 2011 draft. And then they followed it up the next year in 2012 with Andre Vasilevsky in the first round, 19th overall. And... Um, uh, Gusev, uh, Nikita Gusev, the Russian defenseman, seventh round, 202nd overall. And now they recently parted ways with him, 25-year-old defenseman, and they used him as a as a bit of an incentive uh, in the expansion draft, sent him to Vegas, his rights to Vegas, uh, in order to get rid of the Jason Garrison contract. And uh, Gusev promptly signed with uh, the KHL for another couple of years instead of uh, going to Vegas. In, in 13, 14, and 15 drafts, the Tampa Bay Lightning drafted no Russians. But in 2016, they took Oleg Susunov. <laughs> I knew I pronounced the name wrong. Susunov, uh, sixth round, 206th overall. This guy's really fascinating. He's a 19-year-old uh, in the Western Hockey League. Plays for the Moose Jaw Warriors, six foot. Well, they list him as six foot eight, but I'm told he's actually six foot nine, 230 pounds. He's got six goals already in the Western Hockey League, and he's created quite a stir and quite a sensation out there. Because anytime any defenseman is six foot eight, six foot nine, Zdeno Chera like size, um, it's going to create a stir. And then to get off to the start that he's gotten off to with six goals. And, and show not only an ability to be sort of a, a menacing physical presence and use your size to advantage, but also to, uh, to generate some, some offense at that size. Uh, a lot of people talking about him, as they were during Tampa's training camp, came in and, uh, at their combine and their uh, fitness testing, kind of blew some things out of the water and uh, showed himself to be a lot better than maybe they realized when they took him in that sixth round of the, the uh, 2016 draft. In the, in the most recent draft, 2017, um, Tampa took Alexander Volkov second 
round, 48th overall. He's currently playing in Syracuse. And in the third round, they took Alexei Lipinov, uh, 76th overall, and he's looked really good playing for the Barry Colts in the Ontario Hockey League. Uh, was playing on a line with uh, Andrei Svechnikov, who uh, is challenging Rasmus Dahlin to be the first overall pick in this year's draft. But, of course, Svechnikov out of the Barry lineup um, because of tendon damage to his hand that required surgery. So, anyways, the reason I bring it up is that Russian influence in the National Hockey League has been steadily declining over the years. I don't have a research staff to tell me exactly how many Russians are left in the National Hockey League. I, I want to guess it's in the in the range of 30, give or take five. But um, whatever the number is, it's way down from what it used to be. And uh, because I talk to a lot of scouts and a lot of general managers and management people in the NHL as I prepare for the NHL draft, the reality is amongst many teams, there is most definitely the Russian factor. And what that basically is, is teams will rate their players and they do it regardless of nationality. So they just make their player rankings and doesn't matter where you're from, Russia, Timbuktu, Canada, the United States, Finland, Sweden, doesn't matter. They just do their rankings. But then they look at it and they say, realistically, um, there are some players, in many cases Russians, um, they put an asterisk beside them and they say, hmm, is it possible that this guy might not come over as quickly as other players? Is it possible that when this guy does choose to come over, he might not want to play in the American Hockey League, that he'll want to go back to the KHL. Is it possible that this player, more than other players, more than Swedes or Finns or Slovaks or Czechs or Germans or Danes or take your pick of any European um, country, um, is it possible that when they hit the first bit of adversity in the National Hockey League, that instead of trying to battle through it, they just say, no, I'm, I'm going to go back and, and play in the... Uh, in the KHL? Um, is it possible that when their first contract is up and they're looking to do a new deal, that they use the leverage of going back to the KHL as a way to get a lot more money than you would otherwise be willing to pay them? These are all considerations for what's called the Russian factor in the National Hockey League. Now, I think we're well, well, well past the point where we talk about the Russian factor as, you know, the enigmatic Russian. That is, there's, there's some personality or nationality trait that makes Russians more inconsistent or difficult to understand their motivations. I, I, I think all that nonsense has gone out the window. I think you've got players of any country. It doesn't matter. Um, good players, bad players, hardworking players, lazy players. Um, I don't think... Uh, enigmatic is unique to any one nationality although for a time it probably enigmatic and and russian became synonymous um but I, I i do believe that there are teams that do have a real fear that alternative options to the national hockey league or the ahl are more attractive to some russian players than they are to any other nationality and and maybe some of that's rooted in such deep deep patriotism and pride that they don't mind living and playing in Russia. Um, and I'm sure there's some Swedes like that too, or Finns or what have you. But uh, uh, anyways, the, the, the Russian factor for the most part is a, is a real thing. And I don't mean that as a, 
a slight against Russians as much as the reality that, that some some players are more inclined to go back. And and you can go through the list, uh, Ivan Vishnevsky, Dallas, uh, Nikita Filatov, uh, uh, Columbus, uh, Alexander Burmistrov, even though he's on a second tour of duty in the National Hockey League now, he went back, uh, Mikhail Grigorenko, um, Valerie Nichushkin, uh, the Dallas Stars' tenth overall pick in 2013, and and hey, listen, there's Tarasenko and Kuznetsov and Kulikov and Kucherov and Nemesnikov and all these other Russians that have stayed and flourished, and and what have you. But um, anyways, it's uh, it's a discussion point amongst teams, and and let's face it here too, um, the Tampa Bay Lightning got Nikita Kucherov 58th overall because of the Russian factor. I mean, at the under-18 World Championships in Kucherov's draft year, he had 11 goals and 21 points in seven games. Uh, now, he wasn't a huge guy, and he didn't have blinding speed. Uh, he wasn't maybe that prototypical Russian winger that overwhelmed you with his physical maturity and speed and 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 what have you. But 11 goals and 21 games in in 11 goals and 21 points in seven games at the U18 in April. I mean, those numbers were off the charts. Now, of course, if the Tampa Bay Lightning were that smart, they would have taken Nikita Kucherov 27th overall instead of Nemesnikov, who was playing in uh, in London, if memory serves me correct. But um, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that a uh, uh, an NHL franchise that is run by Steve Eiserman um, likes Russians because, of course, Stevie Y played in with the Detroit Red Wings at a time when Fetisov and Konstantinov and Larionov and Kozlov and Fedorov um, were a huge part of, uh, of, of the, the Detroit Red Wing culture and success. And Steve Eiserman was front and center to, to recognize uh, just how wonderful and talented these Russians can be. And, you know, and I did talk to Steve Eiserman about the Russian influence on his team. And, and Stevie Y, as I expected, um, gave me the standard line, hey, we just want good players. We don't care about their nationality. And the truth is, every general manager in the National Hockey League says that. But it, it's easier said than done. And, and you know, I, I've just assumed for quite some time that Steve Eiserman as the GM of the Tampa Bay Lightning, and Al Murray, who's been running their amateur scouting, and I've known Al a long time, dating back to his days with the uh, Los Angeles Kings, very good scout, um, and has done a great job there, not just with Russians, but with, with all the drafting with the Tampa Bay Lightning. As you go up and down their lineup, you see a guy like Braden Point and the, the damage he's doing in the National Hockey League and where they got him in the draft. But I've always just assumed that the Tampa Bay Lightning, more than most teams, would just rank the players, regardless of nationality. And um, but, but Iserman told me that it's not quite that simple, and he says he didn't want to go into a lot of detail about it. But that the consideration that they look at vis-a-vis Russian players when they do their rankings and where they draft them, the critical question for Iserman and the Tampa Bay Lightning is, are we drafting players, uh, and this is true of all players, but specifically to the Russian question, are we drafting players who are willing to do what it takes to be NHLers, and that often means playing in the American Hockey League? And sure enough, if you look, I mean, Nesterov played parts of three seasons in the American Hockey League before um, he and the, the, the Lightning parted company. Now, Nikita Kucherov 
started in the American Hockey League after his junior career, but he didn't last very long, and there was a reason for that. He scored 13 goals in 17 games. He just became too good for the American Hockey League, but the point is he was fully prepared to go there after getting out of junior hockey. And, um, you know, a guy like Gusev never came over, and and that's probably a big part of the reason why the Tampa Bay Lightning, at age 25, parted ways um, and gave up his rights. So now you've got uh, Sosunov in Moose Jaw. Um, you've got Volkov, who they drafted as a 19-year-old and, and now as a 20-year-old, is already playing in Syracuse this season. And Lipinov, who, who's, of course, playing in Barrie. So um, the rule of thumb for the Tampa Bay Lightning is very simple. Um, you know, they want guys that will play in the American Hockey League if the Lightning deem it necessary. Now, the old saw about Russians and drafting them was that, you know, if you get a, a, a Russian who comes over and plays his junior hockey in the CHL, that's a good sign. He's going to be fine. He's not going to ever want to go back home. But we know from the experiences of Burmistrov and Grigorenko that that's not always true. And uh, and and the, the alternate theory is if you get a guy like Valery Nechushkin who was playing only in Russia and came over and then when things didn't go well in Dallas just packed up and went home, um, that those players are more likely to do that. Those that don't have the CHL experience, um, well, it, uh, it, it doesn't always work that, that way in reverse either. So um, anyway, everything about the Tampa Bay Lightning sort of fascinates me this year, uh, how dominating they've been, uh, what Kucherov and the Mesnikov and Stamkos are doing, what Vasilevsky's doing in net. Uh, all the moves that Steve Eiserman made uh, to get this team to bounce back. And obviously the, the biggest difference between this year and last year is good health, um, but also trying to reconstruct their blue line. Dan Girardi moving in, playing some decent minutes for them. And uh, so I'll be keeping an eye on them, as well everybody is, because they're the standard by which everybody's judging themselves in the National Hockey League. And I'll also be keeping an eye on all those really good young Russian players that they've drafted and uh, see how they progress and... Uh, that whole Russian angle uh, as it relates to the lightning. So here we are. We're well into the Bobcast, and we haven't even gotten to any questions yet, so we better get on our horse and uh, and get some of those. Uh, first question comes from Robert Sampson, who says, Bob, I think the Leafs should trade Mitch Marner to get a top-four defenseman. The way the Leafs' lineup is now, Marner's being wasted where he plays anyways, so why not trade him for that defenseman that the Leafs really need? Bob, do you agree or disagree with this idea? That's a good question from uh, Robert Sampson, and my answer is I wouldn't trade Mitch Marner. I'm a big, big, big Mitch Marner fan. And I, I think the Leafs... Uh, think they can manage the cap and build a team uh, with uh, Austin Matthews, William Nylander, and Mitch Marner sort of as their their three young guy foundation up front. Um, and perhaps that's pie in the sky. Maybe they are going to have to trade one of these guys down the road. But I, I do hear what Robert is, is bringing up here about um, Marner where he said he's being wasted where he plays anyways. Now that's an interesting, an interesting line. Uh, there's no question that when healthy Austin Matthews is the go-to guy and his line is the go-to line. Uh, and with Nylander and Hyman almost exclusively playing with Austin Matthews, that line gets the lion's share of uh, the primary responsibility offensively. 
Um, on a Mike Babcock coach team with Nazem Kadri uh, as a shutdown center and in a, in a perfect world playing right now with Leo Komarov and Patrick Marlowe when everybody's healthy, um, that's going to be the go the go-to uh, shutdown defensive line that gets the tough, tough minutes. And that uh, by default goes to Robert's point, And that means that Mitch Marner, James Van Riemsdyk and Tyler Bozak are almost always going to be on what's considered the third line. Now, in fairness to the, to, to the Leafs and the way they utilize these players. Uh, we talked about the, 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 the league and how the, the band, uh, the middle ground band has become wider um, and how there's no really good teams and there's no really bad teams and everybody's that, that, that middle class in the National Hockey League has expanded. As good as Austin Matthews is, um, the way Mike Babcock utilizes his lines the, the difference in any given game between the first line and the third line is almost marginal, some would say. That Austin Matthews is an 18 to 19 minute guy on most nights. And and Mitch Marner, Van Riemsdyk and Bozak quite often are 14 to 15 or 15 to 16 minutes. And that, that, that band between the so-called first line and the third line on the Toronto Maple Leafs is really only the difference of two or three minutes per game. That said, two or three minutes can be significant. And Robert's point about Marner sort of being further down the pecking order and maybe always being there as long as Nylander is the go-to default guy on the right side with with Austin Matthews is maybe correct. But um, I tend to think that uh, you you need those three good lines and that uh, uh, maybe in time, I don't know about Van Riemsdyk if he's going to be back. I don't know if Bozak's going to be back. I'll be fascinated to see what happens and how they employ Nylander and Marner uh, beyond this year. Also fascinated to see what happens with their contract situations. But uh, short answer to your question is no, I would not trade Mitch Marner. Next question from Scott in Kingston. Hi, Bob. I'm not from Belleville. That's right. Kingston's not Belleville. Uh, but I know well Belleville's passion for junior hockey and felt terrible when they lost their OHL Belleville Bulls to Hamilton. Don't you think that placing the Sens farm team there is a match made in heaven? Belleville fans will support the hell out of the team just as they always did with the Bulls. And the big team is just a convenient 2.5 hours up the road to Ottawa. On some days, it takes the Marley players almost that long to get from Rico to ACC. Laugh out loud. Have you heard any rumblings from the Ottawa Brass on how happy they are with the situation in Belleville so far? I know they were just finishing some rink renovations right up to puck drop on their home opener this week. I think it's fantastic for Belleville, Scott and Kingston. Uh, yeah, um, like a lot of people, and especially those of us that covered the OHL and got used to uh, the Belleville Bulls who were brought to town by Doc Vaughn way back when in the early 1980s. Um, it was unfortunate that they lost their OHL team. Uh, it's nice to see the American Hockey League go in there. It gives us in this area, and I, I happen to live less than an hour from Belleville or an hour from Belleville, to be able to go and see an American League game there if you so choose. Um, and, and to Scott's point, I can probably get to Belleville, where I live in uh, Whitby, uh, almost as quick, if not quicker, than going to Rico Coliseum. And I can guarantee you the parking lot at the Yardman Arena slash Wally Deaver Sports Complex um, is a lot better and a lot easier than uh, than Rico. But in any case, um, 
I think the Sens love having their farm team in Belleville instead of Binghamton. I haven't seen the new rink since they've done the renovations. It used to be international size ice, which was really unique in the Ontario Hockey League, but I think it was important that they play on North American size ice. And I am looking forward to getting down to an American Hockey League game in Belleville, but in the meantime, um, I think the Sens are absolutely thrilled that uh, they're a short uh, jaunt, their farm team is a short jaunt along the 401. Next question comes from Andrew. I won't try to pronounce his last name. It's R-U-S-C-I-L. It's uh, Russell, Russell, whatever. Andrew, you know who you are. And actually, I've been hanging on to this question for a long time. It first came in October 11th, 2016. And when I didn't get a chance to use it last November, I knew I was going to hold on to it until this November for the following reason. I'll read the question first and then explain. Andrew writes, can we get some Joe Mansbreak stories? Well, if you don't know who Joe Mansbreak is, it is, of course, Pat Burns. And uh, the reason why this is a good time to talk about Pat Burns and the Joe Mansbreak story is that this, in two days, Sunday, November 19th, uh, marks the seventh anniversary of the passing of uh, Pat Burns, the great National Hockey League coach, who also happened to be a very good friend of mine. And uh, for those who don't know the story, I wrote a story about Pat Burns on September 17th, 2010. And, and the reason I wrote that story um, is, is now somewhat legend. And I, I can tell you quite honestly, of all the things that I've ever written, if this isn't my absolute favorite story, it's certainly one of them. And um, I should point out that for, for those that don't know, um, Pat was diagnosed in, with colon cancer in 2004. Uh, the cancer spread to his liver in 2005. Um, there was a period of time after that where it, it, it looked like he, he may have beaten it, uh, beaten the cancer, um, but it came back and it was in his lungs. And at this time in September of 2010, it was well known to everybody in the hockey community that uh, the writing was on the wall for Pat that he wasn't going to be able to win this fight. It was only a matter of time, but um, was still uh, being heard from now and again. And uh, uh, there were usually stories over the, that two or three year period um, prior to 2010, where, and it was oftentimes stories originating in Montreal, where somebody would report that Pat Burns was very close to, to dying. He was on death's doorstep. He used to call me up sometimes. He'd say, he'd say, man's break. And we'll explain the man's break thing in a second. Uh, or he'd just call up and say, Bobby Mack, those guys in Montreal are at it again. They've got me dead. I'm not dead. I'm still riding my motorcycle. I'm visiting my family. Uh, everything's good. You got to tell them I'm fine. And reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. I guess I should explain the man's break thing. Um, man's break is, is pretty much all that uh, I called Pat Burns for the better part of a decade. And uh, he that's how he greeted me as well. So it was a ubiquitous greeting either way. So if either of us was leaving a message for each other, the, the person receiving the message would be man's break. And the person leaving the message would be Gullen Gumble. And after all these years, uh, all those years, we would always laugh about how we came up with the names. Now, in, in 1996-97 season, Burns was out of work as an NHL coach. He was between jobs. He, he'd been fired in Toronto, 
and he hadn't been hired yet by the Boston Bruins. And uh, he was working with us at TSN. And um, it was myself, Dave Hodge, and Pat Burns, and we were doing Leaf games on uh, TSN. Now, Burnsy had a great sense of humor. And uh, there was a time Hodge and I were playing a, a clip, and it was from Essa Tikkanen, the, the Finnish ranger forward. And he was talking what we used to call Tikkanese, and that, which is to suggest you can never understand what Essa was saying. So um, he he had done an interview, and the, the two names that kind of popped out, he was talking, Essa Tikkanen would say, Joe Mansbreek and Gullen Gumble, And Pat Burns said to us, who they have for Joe Mansbreak and Gullen Gumble, and uh, because we'd heard Tickenese before, Hodge and I translated for him, and we said that Ranger goaltender John Van Beesbrook. So John Van Beesbrook became Joe Mansbreak, and Ranger head coach Colin Campbell was Gullen Gumble, and and Pat thought that was the funniest goddamn thing he ever heard. He had literally had tears coming down his face, and uh, and so after that he would always just call up and want to talk to us and say, man's break. And we'd say gull and gumble and we'd laugh and, and move on. So anyways, that's where the, the reference to man's break would uh, come in. So, so back to the fall, back to September of 2010, even at that point, as, as many fires and rumors as, as I'd squashed over the years, I had started to hear that, that Pat wasn't faring very well. And that the end, the end might not be, that far off. So I kind of put it on my to-do list that I need, while Pat was still very much alive, to make sure that I write something to let him and everybody else know how much I love this guy, how much I respect him, how much I learn from him. And, and, and what I learned from him, he taught me a lot about the game of hockey, but he also taught me a lot about life. And I guess more importantly, um, death maybe. Um, I always like to say that Pat taught me how you live like a man and but also how you like you die one to die like one too so anyways I can vividly remember being at my home on that morning and uh, suddenly on Twitter there were whispers and reports that Pat Burns had died and I saw them and uh, I was like oh I, I can't believe that 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 was how that, that he was passed that he passed away and I hadn't done what I'd intended to do to make sure that he knew how I felt about him and everybody else did too. So I was, I was very mad at myself and um, I was sitting there and I, I was waiting for the official word that, that Pat had died. So th- this was probably nine ten in the morning and uh, you know, an hour goes by nothing. And uh, I actually started to make some notes and, and prepare what I was going to write for a eulogy for for Pat, who I had assumed because I'd read it in so many places, it went viral on Twitter that Pat had passed away. I just assumed that he had. So as they say, an hour goes by, still no official word. I'm waiting for looking at the New Jersey Devil website, their Twitter account. I'm assuming that the Devils will be the first to announce that that Pat has passed away. And a couple hours go by and still absolutely nothing. So, um, and that's not unusual for me to sit and wait for official confirmation when somebody has passed away. Um, I like to break news with the best of them, but I generally, as a rule, uh, almost, I can't think of any exceptions to it, um, 
I don't call around to find out whether somebody's dead. I don't ever try to be the first person to report that somebody's passed away. And in fact, even if I know absolutely 100% that somebody in the game has passed away, I generally shy away from reporting it as breaking news because I think that there's, in, in, in those situations quite often, um, family wants to make sure certain people are notified before any official word goes out. And I don't want to be that guy um, telling somebody, telling a family member that one of their um, family members has passed away. And I also probably don't want to get into a situation uh, where you report that somebody's passed away and, and that it's not. So it's always best just to wait for the... Um, for the official word from wherever that may be coming. And um, as I said, in this case, I was expecting it would come from the last team Pat was with, the New Jersey Devils. It was getting close to 12 noon and that, that day, and I still hadn't heard anything, and I was starting to get really curious. So I, I texted Pat's cousin, Robin. Now, if you know Robin Burns, Pat's a shrinking violet compared to Robin Burns. Robin is a big, burly Irishman from Montreal who's larger than life, who fills up the room, uh, physically and metaphorically speaking. A big man, a big booming voice, unbelievable sense of humor. Um, completely offside half the time, but that's why we love him. And you can have a lot of fun with Robin Burns. So anyways, I texted Robin and I said, hey, Robin, I'm really sorry to hear the news that I'm hearing. I'm assuming it's true that Pat has passed away. But I, it's been a while, a few hours now. I just wanted to check. Well, not very long after that, um, I got a text back from uh, Robin who said, well, if Pat's dead, it's news to me because uh, an hour ago he told me he was going out to the supermarket. Um, let me check to see if... Uh, if anything's happened in the last hour, but as far as I know, he's he's very much alive and kicking. So I was like, wow, that's uh, that's unbelievable. So two minutes later, Robin called me and bellowed into the phone. I just talked to Pat. He's at the supermarket. He's in the bread aisle, not the dead aisle. Well, that absolutely cracked me up. It's still one of my favorite lines in the bread aisle, not the dead aisle. And I think that as I look back on things, because we've got Twitter as an account on these things, um, Robin texted me at 12.18 that Pat was very much alive. Shortly, a couple of minutes later, he phoned me. And at 12.25, my phone rang, and on my caller ID, it said Pat Burns. And I was absolutely giddy, given what had gone on on Twitter all morning, to see Pat Burns uh, on my caller ID. So um, I talked to Pat, um, which I'll talk about in a second, but I, I tweeted out on September 17th, 2010, 1231 PM. Pat Burns just called me. Seriously. Here's what he said. Here we go again. They're trying to kill me before I'm dead. So that was the tweet that I put out. Uh, that one went viral. Um, because everybody knew then that all the reports of Pat's death had been greatly exaggerated, fabricated, um, whatever. Uh, anyways, had a nice chat with Pat, and uh, he said, man's break, they're trying to effing kill me again. Um, I'm at the grocery store. 
I'm, uh, I'm spending time with my family. I'm doing okay. Uh, and it was obvious that, you know, he wasn't doing great at that time. And sure enough, um, on November 19th, 2010. So two months and two days after the, uh, after he wasn't dead, he was dead. But, um, that was a great day because a, I got a chance to talk to him on the telephone and I told him on the phone how I felt about him. Uh, so we did get to talk briefly and I, and I knew as I spoke to him that there was a really good chance that would be the last time that I would ever get a chance to speak to him. Um, and then I promptly got off the phone and, uh, took the next number of hours to write the piece that I wrote on, uh, September 10th, 2000, uh, sorry, September 17th, 2010, um, that Pat got a chance to read it as well. And, uh, anyways, that's the, uh, Joe Man's Breaks story. Okay, then moving on some similarly themed questions here. This one from Tony. Hi, Bob. This is not a direct hockey question, but more of a TSN inquiry. I cannot find where to direct this question. TSN broadcasts some Maple Leaf games on TSN 4. I can view everything on TSN 4, but those games are blacked out. People in the greater Toronto area who have access to all the home games can view, can view those games on TSN 4, while fans like me who live in Newfoundland and have no access to those games are blacked out can someone from tsn explain this for me Uh, another question in the similar vein james dunn why is regional restrictions for games a thing Uh, these are good questions and i probably could have pulled out about 300 more in that same vein so let's tackle this question a little bit and try to do it in such a way uh, as to give you some information and i wouldn't say satisfy you because i can guarantee at the end of the day, you're just not going to like the answer. Uh, you're not going to like the fact that regional restrictions are a thing. But I'll try and explain why they're a thing. I guess the first thing we need to establish here, let's go a little bigger picture before we get down to specifics, is that National Hockey League teams have, their, have, have inventory of games. And they basically sell these games to make money makes sense and and they do so obviously live in the rink so the toronto maple leafs play at the air canada center they sell tickets they get money that's how they make money but they also put the games on television and now the games that go on television the leafs don't own or any nhl team for that we'll use the leafs an example since people bring that one up the leafs don't own the inventory of all their games on tv the league owns some of the games, which is to suggest there's something called national television rights. In Canada, those national television rights currently belong to Rogers. And those national television rights take the form of Hockey Night in Canada on the CBC or Rogers stations on Saturday night, or the midweek national game on Wednesday night that's on Sportsnet. Uh, In the United States, NBC owns the national rights, primarily for Sunday games, especially from January on, but also the national cable rights where you will see games on Wednesday, uh, as well as other nights on NBC Sports Network. So basically, um, even though the teams um, technically own the rights to their games, the league owns the rights to the national games and determining which of those national games um, will be sold for the greater glory of the National Hockey League. So on Saturday night, for example, whether it's the Leafs 
or the Canadians or the Canucks or the Oilers or any of the Canadian teams. Most of those teams try to play home games on Saturday nights, and that's all part of the national TV package that is Hockey Night in Canada. In 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 Canada, um, and that generates huge amounts of revenue for the National Hockey League, but also its member clubs, and everybody understands that. Um, now. The games that are not national, that is not the Wednesday night games, not the Saturday night games in Canada or the Sunday afternoon games in the United States, um, those are owned by the teams to sell locally, to have their local rights. So the Ottawa Senators can have their local rights and Montreal Canadiens and all the, let's use the, the seven Canadian teams as an example. And there is value in having those local rights um, because the people in in the geographic area that that are in Ottawa, for example, want to see Ottawa Senators games, and the those various teams, be it Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, Winnipeg, they can sell those local rights to a television network. So in Canada right now, currently, the Vancouver local right, the Vancouver, Edmonton, and Calgary local rights belong to Sportsnet. The Winnipeg, uh, Ottawa, and Montreal local rights belong to TSN. The Toronto Maple Leafs local rights are split between Rogers, uh, between Sportsnet and TSN. Now, regional rights or blackouts or restrictions or whatever you want to call them are there to protect those teams, the integrity of those teams' packages. So in other words... If the Ottawa Senators are playing a game on the same night as the Montreal Canadiens, the Ottawa Senators don't want the Montreal Canadian games coming into the area, or they don't want the Toronto Maple Leaf games coming into the area, uh, and vice versa. And it's the same thing all across Canada. Um, those t- local teams don't want competition all over the dial from every other team that's playing in Canada. So as a result, they make those games only, they make those regional games only available in the region. This has nothing to do with TSN. This has nothing to do with Sportsnet. This is all about um, NHL teams wanting to protect their local rights and getting as many eyeballs as they possibly can watching their game from their fans. And the more fans that they can get watching those games, the more those rights are worth, the, the, the regional rights. So it's when, when a, a, fan, a Maple Leaf fan in Newfoundland can't get the Leaf game or Leaf regional game on a Thursday night, it's not because TSN doesn't like Newfoundland. It's because the National Hockey League has regions set up um, that are ascribed to each team and that those teams can only broadcast their games in regional areas. Now, because a network like Rogers uh, and Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada has national rights, they can get away with, if the Edmonton Oilers, for example, are playing a regional, so-called regional game on a Wednesday night, um, if, if they're not uh, infringing on other... Um, Canadian teams' local games on the Wednesday night, you have the ability, Rogers has the ability, to take a regional game and make it national. And that's where a lot of people get confused as to um, blackouts for, for this team or that team. 
at the end of the day, um, the thing that's difficult to overcome is that in today's world, uh, with the internet and everything else being what it is, everybody assumes that everybody should get everything for free. And if these teams gave up all their games for free for everybody to watch, then they wouldn't generate any revenue for those games. And while fans might say, I don't care, I want the games for free, I want to be able to watch whatever game I want to watch whenever I want to watch it, well, if your team isn't generating revenue, then they can't afford to pay the salaries. And if your team's, if the league's not generating revenue, then hockey-related revenue is not going to go up, the salary cap's not going to go up, and the whole sort of financial foundation of the league kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. So that's really the bottom line, is that there are regional restrictions as prescribed by the league, and that's uh, they've got to be observed in, most, in many cases. And that may upset a lot of viewers, but that's the reality, and it's not a network thing. So when you send your nasty emails to TSN for blacking out a Leaf game or a Jets game or a Sens game or a Canadians game, understand that we're only following the rules that are laid out um, by the teams and by the league. And uh, all I can suggest to you is buy the NHL Game Center package, although I do know there are nights when even on Game Center, uh, you go on and it says you're blacked out. That's because sometimes if there's a national game on Sportsnet or Hockey Night in Canada, um, you're not able to uh, access the game you want to access on your game center. Um, life's not fair sometimes, and the notion that you get to see every game whenever you want to see it um, is more mythical than real, and it won't be changing anytime soon that I'm aware of. Another couple of questions in the same sort of vein. This one about uh, the interweb, so to speak, and the old geolock. This one's from Robin McCormick in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, Hi, Bob. Really enjoy your show. And I really enjoyed Michael Farber's story with Paul Correa. I was just grateful to be able to see it at all. As I am down south below the 49th parallel, as well as below the Mason-Dixon line, it does get lonely for us hockey fans. Can you explain why the dreaded geolock is sometimes on and sometimes not? And a similar question from Robert Smith, who I believe is uh, in uh, Niagara Falls or Buffalo, who says, Hi, Bob. I work and can literally look out my window and see Canada across the river, yet I can't view videos on TSN because I'm not in Canada. Excuse me. Can you please fix this? Maybe let the higher-ups know that Canadians can go on NHL.com and ESPN.com and view things and maybe open the door the other way. Well, the old dreaded geolock. Um, what I would say about the geolock is this. Again, TSN does not choose to make content unavailable to people outside of Canada. We are legally obliged to do that when we ceased to have national NHL rights. In, uh, a decision was made in, well, it would have been four years ago, the end of this month, November, I want to say it was November 25th, 26, 2013, um, TSN lost the national rights um, to uh, to Rogers, and at that moment, um, well, the, starting the next season, anyways, um, 
it was not it's not legally possible if TSN is using NHL game video so video from the National Hockey League games uh, it it cannot be uh, used uh, outside of Canada and that's the reason why um, some stuff is geolocked and other stuff is not so you, when when we were first presented with this problem recognizing it was a problem um, one of the things that I was involved with insider trading I, I said initially insider trading was geolocked so myself Darren Dreger Pierre Lebrun James Duthie were doing insider trading um, they put up the the video that goes along with what we're talking about and then people in the United States couldn't see it and they were pissed off and I understand why they were pissed off so I I just immediately said well okay so what's the problem here why are we geolocked and it was explained to me why we were geolocked and I said okay well guess what let's not use NHL video <laughs> let's use still pictures let's use whatever and so we uh, we basically, for the most part, stopped uh, using NHL video or using video that we could. And a lot of the original stuff, I mean, older stuff uh, for the Paul Korea feature and what have you, that doesn't fall under the same sort of thing. Not sure people realize it, but when, when a network loses rights to a, a sports league or a, a, a specific event um, or association, um, they have to negotiate even to to buy highlights. So when TSN lost the NHL rights um, to uh, to Rogers, uh, in order for us to run highlights of the NHL, we had to do a deal with Rogers to get those highlights. The same as they have to do a deal with TSN, who owns the Canadian TV rights, national rights, for the National Football League. Uh, for a lot of PGA golf, for a lot of tennis. So the networks generally play ball with each other on that stuff because everybody's got to have their highlights for SportsCenter or uh, the various shows on the other networks, and that's why it works that way. So anyways, in answer to your question, we basically try to find a way around the geolock as much as possible, but um, there are certain legal restrictions, and uh, that's the way it, it, uh, it has to be. And and quite frankly, there's stuff that I go to watch in Canada. When I'm in Canada, um, and NBC puts some video on that I can't see here because some of the NBC video can't come to Canada because uh, Rogers has the rights in Canada. At least that's my understanding of it. I'm not a lawyer, but uh, I like to try and help out the listeners and viewers as much as possible. So um, that's basically it. Okay, let's zip through some hockey hockey questions, uh, specifically as it relates to the draft. Uh, first comes from Stanley Olson. Hey, Bob, longtime listener, is a diehard Detroit Red Wings fan. Uh, of all the 200, 2018 defensive draft prospects, who has the highest ceiling and who is the most NHL ready other than Dolan? Thanks for the hard work. Hope you had a relaxing off season. That from Stanley Olson. Uh, yes, Rasmus Dahlin is the undisputed number one defenseman available in this draft. Might be the undisputed number one player in this draft. Although Andrei Svechnikov, when he comes back from injury, may have something to say about that. But um, the, the elite defensemen in this draft are Rasmus Dahlin, who, uh, by the way, another highlight reel goal this week. Uh, go on Twitter. Um, to get the search function going or go on YouTube and look for the latest Rasmus Dahlin goal. It's a beauty. Uh, went end to end and uh, scored another highlight real goal, and there's lots of those. So um, 
he's he's clearly a dynamic guy that uh, looks like he's ready to make an immediate impact in the National Hockey League. The, the next two guys, I think, that fall into the uh, the highest offensive ceiling and dynamic quality uh, as another Swede, Adam Boquist, uh, who's a smaller guy but uh, is having a great season in Sweden. And Quinn Hughes, the uh, University of Michigan freshman defenseman, uh, who's, uh, who's a really good skater, and we're going to see him, I think, on the U.S. World Junior team. Um, Boquist and Dahlen should also be on the, uh, the Swedish team, I would think, for the World Juniors. Uh, those are the top three guys. Bodie Wild, um, who's, uh, who's a bigger defenseman but is a marvelous skater, might also fit in. And then there's a ton of defensemen after that that are really good. But I think the ones that have that really dynamic quality to their game beyond Dahlen are Boquist and Hughes in particular, and uh, perhaps Bodie Wild as well. Uh, next question. Uh, this one from Viking Emanuel Nilsson. Greetings from Sweden. Uh, being a Canucks fan for basically my entire life, I was five when they drafted the Sedins and have been a loyal fan ever since. As you can imagine, it's not the most fun right now, although the youth movement in Vancouver is progressing quicker and smoother than I thought. Being Swedish, it's natural that the Swedish media is hyping Rasmus Dahlin a lot. So my question is, in your eyes, where does Dahlin rank compared to recent top prospect defensemen such as Aaron Ekblad, Ryan Murray, Drew Doughty, and Eric Johnston? Um, okay. Um, I think Dahlin probably falls more in the Drew Doughty category for impact and and the ability to uh, uh, to take you out of your seat. Maybe Eric Carlson as well. Eric Ekblad's a, a different type of defenseman than Dolan, I think, um, but Ekblad's terrific. Uh, Ryan Murray's never been, he was never even in his draft year, nearly as exciting a prospect as Dolan or a lot of these other guys. Uh, and he's had to really battle injuries along the way. Same thing with Eric Johnson, um, who went from St. Louis to, to Colorado. But uh, in any case, I I think Dolan is is going to be a high impact guy, and I think he's more along the lines of of what Drew Doughty or Eric Carlson are accomplishing. Although he's Dolan appears to be have a much bigger frame than Eric Carlson, but I I, I think the excitement and hype for Dolan is is very much uh, a real thing. Next question: Spencer Sheriff in St. Louis. Hey, Bob, huge fan of the show and your other work for TSN and NBCSN stateside. My question is regarding a tweet you recently sent out about Blues prospect Robert Thomas. I've not seen much of Thomas play live, but I recall a big knock against him last year was his inability to become a top-end goal scorer. However, from what I've seen of him, he seems to have quite the nose for the net and scores most of his goals on the doorstep. Could he be a much better prospect than people have thought he was in June and develop into one of the better players in his draft class? Or is this scoring surge a flash in the pan? A small side note to this, you all you detailed that uh, Robert Thomas and fellow Blues prospect Jordan Cairo could also be Olympic candidates. Do you see the U.S. and Canada drawing most of its Olympic rosters from the junior-slash-amateur talent pool? Thanks, Spencer, from St. Louis. Great question on uh, Robert Thomas. Um, Robert Thomas had 16 goals in 66 games last year for the London Knights, but he was a point-a-game player at 66 points. Uh, was was clearly you know a well-deserved first-round pick, and as we said, 20th overall. Um, 
to the St. Louis Blues in last year's draft. I know there were a lot of people who raised concerns about the low goal total, 16 goals and 50 assists. I talked to a lot of people in the Ontario Hockey League that watched Thomas a lot, and they said, don't don't think this guy can't score goals. It's just that he's not getting the same prime scoring opportunities as a very deep London Knight team last season. And sure enough, here we are this season. The Knights lost a lot to graduation. Um, and uh, Thomas is absolutely flourishing as a goal scorer. 15 goals in his first 17 games played. Better than a point a game player now, 26 points. And we're seeing the goal scoring ability. So no, I don't think it's a flash in the pan. I- I'm not certain that... Robert Thomas is going to be an Austin Matthews, Patrick Line finisher in the National Hockey League. But uh, I don't think there's any concern whatsoever about his ability to score goals. And I think he's going to turn into a great pick. He's, he's very fast, and I think he's very skilled, and I think he's got a real good shot. And, uh, you know, St. Louis is going to love that uh, 2017 draft because, as, as you mentioned, Spencer, Jordan Cairo uh, taken 35th overall in the second round. Uh, by the Blues. He's got 17 goals in 19 games for the Sarnia Sting this year. He's been on fuego, although he's cooled off a little bit later, a little bit lately, um, but I don't think anybody could keep up the pace that he was uh, keeping up with, and he, he was more of a goal scorer from the get-go last year. He had 30 goals uh, for Sarnia last season. Uh, two tremendous uh, prospects for the Blues. Lots of excitement in St. Louis about their prospect pool, and um, Billy Armstrong and the scouting staff there have done a great job. And as for the uh, the Olympics, I did mention that Kairou and Thomas are the types of junior age players that Canada might look at um, for their Canadian Olympic team. I would say the Canadian Olympic team will be comprised mostly of more experienced players, former NHL or American Hockey League pros that are playing in European leagues. Um, but I, I would think that there'd be a handful anywhere from maybe two to four or five at the high end, maybe one or two on the low end, um, where that skill level that uh, is potentially elite, you know, Kairou's a great finisher. Um, I don't know that if any of the, the, the 25 to 35-year-old options that are currently playing in Europe for team that might play for team Canada at the Olympics would have the finishing touch of a Cairo or a Thomas. So these guys will get a look, no guarantee that they make the team, but I can see a handful of um, uh, highly skilled junior eligible players uh, getting on the Canadian Olympic team. As far as the team USA goes, uh, I think they're going to have, I wouldn't say a roughly even split, but maybe 60, 40 split of, of, former NHL American League pros that are currently playing in Europe uh, as the core of their team. Um, guys like Mark Arcabello, uh, Matt Gilroy, those two guys in particular, Brian Gianta. Uh, I could see, all, <clears throat> excuse me, all three of those guys, Arcabello, Gilroy, and uh, Gianta as being the nucleus up front of, of the U.S. Olympic team. But I also think they're going to be going to uh, to the college ranks in particular. Uh, uh, Troy Terry, <clears throat> excuse me, who was so great in the shootout for Team USA at the World Juniors last year uh, out of the NCAA. Um, 
Ryan Donato at Harvard. Um, I could see a bunch of those young guys also being on the uh, the U.S. Olympic team. Next question from Alex Giuliano. Hey, Bob, big-time fan of the Bobcast. Um, let's see here. With Connor McDavid going first overall in 15 and Austin Matthews in 2016, who do you see emerging as the next bonafide franchise player? Uh, with murmurs of the 17 draft, Hishi or Patrick not being as deep as 15, and Rasmus Dahlin currently projected as first overall. Uh, none of these kids seem to have the giant hype tied to them at such a young age as McDavid, Matthews, Crosby, Kane, etc. How do you see this playing out in 2018 uh, beyond? And um, to that, I would say this. I think there's going to be a lot of hype for Dolan. Um To have a defenseman who's got that kind of offensive upside is very exciting. Um, but I hear what you're saying about a generational talent, per se. Um, in 2019, the early, uh, the early leader, I guess, for potential number one in 2019 is Jack Hughes. Now, Jack Hughes is a 5'10-ish, 160-odd pound uh, center who plays for the U.S. under-17 team, uh, both in the USHL and obviously in tournament play. They just concluded and won the gold medal at the World Under-17 Challenge at Fort St. John in Dawson Creek, British Columbia. And uh, Jack Hughes really ripped that tournament apart, as did the American team in winning gold. And uh, Jack Hughes is uh, is really a, a dynamic player. And, and I don't know that we should necessarily give him the generational talent billing, but if you were putting him somewhere on the spectrum... Think Mitch Marner, Clayton Keller at the at one end of the spectrum. And I, I'll say Connor McDavid at the other end of the spectrum, but Jack Hughes isn't nearly as big as Connor McDavid. And, uh, and, and that's, so that's probably a misnomer. But what I'm trying to set up here on this scale or spectrum is the dynamic offensive player who can carry a team offensively. And, and, it's, and it's early yet, and we don't want to put too much pressure on a 16-year-old kid. But Jack Hughes, certainly at the under-17 challenge, is playing the USHL. Uh, the fact that he would have been the number one overall pick in the OHL draft last summer, last spring rather, um, if he'd been fully prepared to report, um, he's, he's, he's could be a special player. And so I think he's a, he's a guy to keep an eye on. And of course, as we uh, we talked earlier about the the defenseman draft, Quinn Hughes, the University of Michigan freshman, that of course is the older brother of Jack Hughes. Jack Hughes and Quinn Hughes, by the way, the son of Jimmy Hughes, who uh, used to be uh, an executive with the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, amongst other organizations. I believe he's now doing some development work for uh, CAA. The, uh, the player agency uh, outfit that uh, with Pat Brisson, J.P. Barry, et al., who, uh, who, of course, in this case, represent the Hughes brother. But uh, pretty exciting uh, prospect. Uh, it's going to be really fun um, to watch him as he works his way towards the uh, 2019 National Hockey League entry draft. Uh, another prospect-related question, this one, Pete from New Jersey. Hey, Bob, love the show. I'm a diehard Devils fan and really happy with what we've seen so far from Nico Heeshear and Will Butcher. But Jesper Bratt came out of nowhere to make this team out of camp. 
and at the time of this writing has three goals and two assists in two regular season games. My question is, where did this kid come from? He was a sixth-round pick in 2016. What was the scouting report on him at the time? Was there some kind of knock on him? Was he just not projected to be that good? Either way, I know that it's early, but the ceiling looks high on Brat, and I can't wait to see how he develops moving forward. Thanks, as always, for the insight, and keep up the good work. Uh, well, you're absolutely right. There is a sense of coming out of nowhereism on uh, Jesper Bratt. Um, I can tell you this, that, uh, you know, he's not the biggest guy in the world. And um, in fact, let's look this up here. We'll do a little, we'll do a little research as we sit here and see how quickly I can do this without sounding like an idiot. No, it's not going very well so far. You ever hate it when you go to your iPad and things don't go quite as quickly? Well, here we go. Jesper Bratt. So let's go to Jesper Bratt, and we'll go to HockeyDB, for argument's sake. Could go to Elite Prospects. Two great websites, by the way. Shout out to HockeyDB.com. Shout out to EliteProspects.com. Both of those are unbelievably great tool. So right now, Bratt is now up to five goals, 13 points in 18 games. He's played very, very well. Uh, He's listed at 5'10", 175 pounds. When the Devils took him in the sixth round a couple of years ago, he wasn't that big. In fact, I talked to the the Devils scouting staff about him, and um, he was a smaller guy, and he was he was a you know a decent enough prospect, but he didn't rip apart the under eighteen uh, in April of his draft year, and and as such, he was just slotted in as sort of a physically immature kid that showed some some offensive flair but um, uh, was very much a consensus later round pick just to be taken in the, in, in the late stages of the draft. And, and I think the Devils would be the first to admit that they were a little taken aback by how quickly he, uh, he came on in camp this year and uh, played his way right onto the team and uh, has shown no real signs of slowing up. So... Um, Good on them to be able to get a guy in the sixth round that can have that kind of immediate impact. Uh, I'm sure the London Knights, who took Bratt in the import draft, fully expected that they were going to get him, and he'd be ripping up the Ontario Hockey League right now with Robert Thomas and uh, and uh, Alex Formanton and Max Jones and Cliff Poo. Um, but he's not. He's in the NHL, and they do have the ability that even if they – they wanted to to not play him in the National Hockey League. They could send him to the American Hockey League instead of uh, the London Knights. So um, uh, I think it's safe to say New Jersey probably expected that Bratt was likely going to be with the London Knights this season, but he literally played his way onto the team. So just sometimes that happens now and again uh, and surprises people. Uh, here's an older uh, Swedish draft question. This one... Um, see from uh, Emmanuel uh, what was the perception of Marcus Naslin leading up to the 1991 draft and during the years he was drafted by Pittsburgh was he regarded as a top prospect him being selected in the second half of the first round suggests that he was not but you never know and was he widely considered a bust by the time he was traded by to the Canucks Well, as history documents, um, Marcus Naslin was taken 16th overall in the 1991 uh, NHL draft. Um, He was considered a solid first-round pick, 
and and not elite to the extent of of going in the the top five. Um, but I can tell you this: it's a very interesting story. The Pittsburgh Penguins had a great amount of debate as to who they were going to take with that 16th overall pick in 1991. Um, Scotty Bowman uh, got personally involved with the scouting back then, as did Greg Malone and uh, Pierre Maguire, who was part of the organization. And and those three particular individuals in particular, um, when they were scouting in Europe, um, really liked what they were seeing from Marcus Nasland and Modo and were very high on them. Other members of the uh, the scouting department in Pittsburgh weren't as high on Naslin, and in fact, at that draft, were much uh, keener, it seemed, on um, getting a player by the name of Trevor Halverson from the North Bay Centennials. Now, history will show that Trevor Halverson, let's look this up here one second. Trevor Halverson went uh, 21st overall in that same draft, so five picks after the Pittsburgh Penguins took Marcus Nasland. And uh, Trevor Halverson in his draft year, uh, let's see, so that was the 91 draft. Uh, Trevor Halverson scored 59 goals in 64 games, 59 goals and 128 points in 64 games for the Centennials that year. That was his last year of junior. So he was a late bloomer, Halverson was. A six foot one, two hundred pound left winger, left shot left winger, and there was a lot of support within the Pittsburgh scouting organization, scouting department, to take Trevor Halverson uh, with that 16th overall pick. Um, but ultimately, because Bowman, Malone, and McGuire had seen um, Haslam firsthand and decided that they thought he had the the greatest upside, uh, they decided to go with Naslin. Great decision. The decision to trade him, um, and what was the date of the trade? March 20th, 96, I believe. Uh, yeah, March 20th, 1996, one of the most lopsided trades in NHL history. Marcus Naslin of the Vancouver Canucks for Alex Stoyanov. Uh, Stoyanov played 45 games, uh, two goals, four assists. Don't have to tell anybody what Marcus Naslin did for the Vancouver Canucks. And and to uh, Emmanuel's question about um, Naslin, he wasn't perceived as a bust by any means um, that season that he was traded. but And he had started to put up some good numbers, but he was starting to fade as the season went along. And he just sort of fell out of favor in Pittsburgh. And I'm not sure there was any one specific reason. Um, I think they thought he played a quiet game that maybe didn't assert himself. And uh, personality-wise, uh, kind of a quiet guy off the ice. And I think they wondered if he was uh, going to be able to maintain what he was starting there that year in, uh, in Pittsburgh with some pretty good numbers. And anyways, bad trade, great player, and uh, the Marcus Nasland Pittsburgh story. Uh, next question, Kyle Repar from Tampa, Florida. Hi, Bob. I was wondering if major junior players who are signed to NHL contracts are allowed to participate in the upcoming Olympics. And my understanding is, yes, that is the case. Uh, any, players on NHL contracts are not allowed to participate in the Olympics. If you're in the American Hockey League, for example, on an NHL contract, you cannot participate in the Olympics. But if you've been assigned to junior hockey where you're not actually using up that NHL contract, uh, you are eligible. Uh, so unless there's any further changes on that, 
not going to happen. Let's get to a couple of quickie rule questions. Uh, we always get these. Uh, Susan Bignall says, in the October 14th Calgary-Vancouver game, Johnny Goodrow clearly passes the puck to Dougie Hamilton along the boards to put him in a shooting lane that resulted in a goal, yet no assist was credited to Goodrow. Is a decision to grant assist done by an official scorekeeper? Did, in your opinion, Goodrow deserve an assist? And if so, is there a review or appeal process? What I can tell you, Susan, and what you may have already figured out since you sent that e- email into the Bobcast is that uh, those assists were added after the fact. Uh, on the playing question, uh, Sean Monahan won the face-off back to Johnny Goodrow at the top of the circle. Goodrow turned around, put it back to Dougie Hamilton. Dougie Hamilton walked the line, took a shot, deflected by Monahan, and it goes in. Uh, so Monahan gets the goal. Um, Hamilton and Goodrow get the assist, but in the immediate aftermath of the game, the game sheet did not show an assist for uh, for those guys, and that's why Susan sent the email. So yeah, they will go to video after the fact to correct errors, and everybody ended up with the points they were supposed to end up. Uh, question from Rod Blanchard in San Luis, New Brunswick. Great listening to you every week. My question is, why wasn't there an unsportsmanlike <clears throat> excuse me, unsportsmanlike conduct penalty assessed to Carey Price for destroying his goalie stick against the post in Anaheim. This question, of course, was from a while ago. If you remember that game in Anaheim where Carey Price, uh, after Anaheim put up a six spot in the third period, um, Carey Price obliterated his goal stick uh, against the post. He's had bigger fish to fry or problems to worry about since then. Uh, the injury that's got him out of the lineup, the play of the Montreal Canadiens, his overall play himself. But here's the deal. Um, I guess shattering your stick into a million pieces by over and over and over again, smashing against the post, isn't the definition of sportsmanlike. But the great thing about the game, and it's one of the things I love, is that referees also understand that sometimes you got to let off a little steam. And as long as you're not throwing your stick javelin style at the referee um, or uh, taking an official down uh, or embarrassing the game in some way, um, it's always good to let the players have a little uh, safety valve. And Carey Price smashing his stick on the goalpost uh, was in within the realm of that's okay by us, doesn't need to be a penalty. Uh, let's see here. Next, Scott in Kingston. Bob, when nobody saw anything and a stop in play occurs with a player lying on the ice, perhaps bleeding or unconscious, why not a video review to assess, assess a major penalty rather than the refs peeking at the scoreboard screen? Let's just get the call right. Well, you are right. I think we have got a situation now where officials sometimes peek at the video screen to see if it should be four minutes or five-minute penalty as opposed to a two-minute minor. And that's not really kosher. And I know Dave Haxtall last night on the Radko Gudis uh, match penalty. Um, uh, not that he had a leg to stand, not that Gudis has a leg to stand on uh, for that flagrant violation that should be uh, heavy suspension. And he has the in-person hearing, offered the in-person hearing by the NHL. Um, but to, to Scott's question, um, no more video review. Uncle, no mas. Um, I think we we learned our lesson on the coach's challenge with unintended consequences of goalie interference and offside challenges, that the last thing in the world we need is officiating um, by video review. 
and I and it's funny because I do know hockey operations a number of years ago gave the general managers the option. Do you want us to use video review in the war room, in the situation room in Toronto to make sure that we're not handing out four minute minor penalties for high sticking incorrectly, which is to suggest sometimes one teammate will hit another teammate with a stick, catch him with a high stick. The referee thinks that an, a player on the opposing team did it. And therefore it's a, it's a four-minute minor, a totally undeserved four-minute minor. They said, do you want us to correct that when we see that? And basically, the general manager said, and to their credit, I guess, said, no, we don't want to get into officiating by video review. Um, and I think we have got into that on the offside and the goalie interference, but nevertheless, um, no more. Let's not open it up anymore. Okay, uh, next question comes from... Where's it come from? I can't even find his name here. Oh, well. Anyways, I think it comes from Kamulia. Okay, Kamulia. Sounds good. Um, on September 22nd, Columbus Blue Jackets and Pittsburgh Penguins played a preseason game in Columbus. During the game, Pittsburgh goalie Antti Niemi, <laughs> that was a long time ago, uh, lost his glove and made a save barehand. Fortunately, Niemi did not suffer injury during the play. To me, nothing was remarkable other than Niemi's guts during the play. Goalies losing safety equipment happens from time to time. Uh, and up to now, from my understanding, if a referee noticed the loss of a glove or a mask or even a loose strap, he could or would stop play in, in order to avoid the goaltender being injured. However, during the after-game locker room interview, Niemi about to save, he mentions that starting this year, the referees will no longer stop a play if a goalie loses his glove, as he did during the game. Niemi said that he was told by the referees they will only stop a goal, stop a game if a goalie loses his mask. Did I get that right? Um, anyways, perhaps I'm wrong about the rules. What are the rules about stopping a play when a goaltender loses equipment? Okay, here's the, the funny thing. Um, even when a goalie loses his mask, the referee is not obliged to stop play. He is obliged to stop play if the goalie loses his mask and, and the goalie's team gets possession of the puck. But if a goaltender loses his mask, his glove, his jock, his goalie pads, his pants, whatever, if he loses all of those and the other team has a scoring opportunity, is, is in possession of the puck, and has what's deemed to be a scoring opportunity, um, it's at the ref's discretion as to whether or not he blows the whistle. So um, I had kind of always assumed that if the goalie loses his mask, that there's a safety provision in there. Well, there's not. It's up to the referee to, at his discretion to decide. And in fact, if, if he believes there's a scoring opportunity to be had by the team with the puck, and the goalie without the mask or the glove or whatever it may be, uh, that's too bad for him. And uh, kind of interesting that, uh, that that's the case. But uh, nevertheless, so a little danger pay for the goalies on that one. Alrighty then, final question of this week's Bobcast goes to Sam from Port Huron, Michigan. We'll keep this one light. Um, Bob, I was recently watching a game on NBC and Doc Emmerich mentioned that you got a six-game suspension in a men's hockey league game. What on earth could you have done to get a six-game suspension? Well, Sam, uh, perfectly justified. And Doc, thanks very much for outing me on national television. 
Um, this would have been during the 1979-80 season. I was working as a cub reporter at the Sioux Star in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. I was all of 22, 23 years old at the time. I was playing uh, men's hockey for a team called Ojadaki Mountain. There was a uh, a men's clothing store, a men's and women's clothing store, sort of upscale place to buy jeans and nice clothing on Queen Street in Sault Ste. Marie. It was owned by a guy by the name of Bob Courier, and um, he uh, he ran this uh, had had an entry in a men's men's league there, and he sponsored the team. And some of the guys I worked with at the Sioux Star and others were on this team, and we had Colorado Rocky style uniforms. If anybody's ever seen the picture, go to my Instagram account, um, uh, Bob McKenzie TSN, um, or just go on Twitter and you'll see a picture of me with a beard um, sort of looked like Ogie Oglethorpe phase of my life and um, we had the the, uh, the old Colorado Rocky uniforms because we uh, were sponsored by Ojadaki Mountain and um, anyways we were playing in the uh, the Rankin Men's Hockey League at the Rankin Arena the east end of Sault Ste. Marie on the Indian Reserve there and uh this being the 19, late 1970s, uh, that's when men were men and uh, men's hockey league was tough and I was getting the crap beat out of me because um, I certainly wasn't tough. Uh, I was the furthest thing from tough, but it was, you were taking your life in your hands at all levels of hockey in the 1970s. Just let me say that. And all I can tell you is that the six game suspension, and I hate to admit it, but I will explain it, was for hair pulling. Not proud of that. But it was a matter of life and death, uh, my life, my potential death. And really what it boiled down to was there was a line brawl. Um, don't know why it happened. Did nothing to provoke it. Was just lined up on the uh, on my right wing position. And uh, the two centers decided to get into it. And they got into it. And the next thing you know, everybody was paired off. And the guy that I was paired off with decided... For no particular reason, he wanted to beat the crap out of me. As I say, not overly tough. Uh, and the problem with men's hockey is you've got a couple of guys, a couple of nice guys refereeing. Uh, so a line brawl takes place. And um, so they're trying to break up what fights they can. Uh, mine wasn't one of the ones that was getting broken up. And I had a rather large guy who was pretty tough on top of me, um, basically raining punches down on my face. And um, being the 1970s, in addition to being a time of very tough hockey, it was also a time when, as I, if you look at my picture uh, from that Ojadaki Mountain team, uh, my hair was long, my beard was long, and uh, the guy that I was fighting, his hair was long and his beard was long. And if memory serves me correctly, as I was getting filled in with no referee to break it up, um, I realized that uh, my life was flashing before my eyes. And if I didn't stop this from happening, it was not was not going to end well for me. So I reached up and grabbed very large amounts of hair and beard and just basically pulled until uh, large clumps came out and I was able to wrestle myself off. And uh, that was basically it. So uh, I got a six-game suspension for pulling hair. That's uh, that's the way it goes sometimes, and uh, I'm not sure what else to say uh, beyond it was a matter of uh, self-preservation. And uh, so there you have it. That's uh, 
that's my sixth game. Hair, hair pulling suspension story. Wish, uh, I wish I could have dressed it up a little better than that, but is what it is. Anyways, uh, that's it uh, for all you Americans. As I said, have a happy Thanksgiving. And uh, for everybody else, uh, let's enjoy the games and uh, see if we can get more happy teams and happy fan bases in the National Hockey League. All the best. Take care. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.